You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 11th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Evening, folks. Hello, hello. It, it is evening. It's, it's, it's light later in the evening. So I know. Daylight been, savings time. I've been kind of out of sorts for the last few days. I was so tired the next day. That Monday at work, the Monday after we had to put the clocks forward, I lost an hour's sleep, and that's all it takes. I was wiped out. <laughs> that incredible or, how just one hour like that can baby. Really, really, affect, really affect things. And it takes a few I, days, as far as I'm concerned, to get caught up. You're already sleep-deprived if a one-hour time shift is having an impact on you. Yeah, I'm, I'm barely getting enough sleep as it is, so that losing that extra hour, was I felt it. I, I read recently that, or not recently, I've heard this a lot recently and have read it many times over the past couple of years that a lack of sleep or being, you know, consistently sleep deprived, you know, five, six hours a night could have a significant impact on the length of your life. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Why are we still doing this, by the way? I mean, I kind, I, I kind of lost all, any and all lingering faith I had in daylight savings when the freaking candy industry <laughs> lobbied, lobbied Congress to change the date so that it coordinates with Halloween in an advantageous way. And I'm like, oh, so this is just a big freaking, you know, money play basically. And we're all paying for it with our, with our health. Hey, it's for Halloween. Leave it alone. They should decide where to set the clock and just friggin' leave it there all year round. The shifting back and forth is for nothing. You know, it's it, it's not for the no, farmers. That's a big yeah. That's that's a yeah, myth. It's, it's a not myth. for the farmers. They don't care. They just they're they're on the sun schedule. They don't care what time it is. John Oliver did a brilliant piece on it on his show. Yeah. Oh this yeah, past week. I so love funny. Him. Yeah, so so funny. Just just, just really yeah. just his inertia. Not really even clear why it was created. I think it was created to save money in save electricity in World War Two. Uh, but it doesn't save electricity anymore. Its original reason no longer exists. I keep right. reading a lot of different reasons why it exists. I read something mm-hmm. started in Russia with this. I don't really know what the truth Germany. is. I, Germany. Germany. Oh, Germany. Yeah. Okay, yeah. whatever. Lower fuel costs. Supposedly it, it helps save on accidents, road safety advocates, and so forth. I, it's all speculative. The funniest bit on John Oliver's where he said, then you have to change the time on the effing microwave. <laughs> Which is so true. You go around your house, you have all these little clocks. You got to change. Then for weeks, you know, like you don't get to that last clock, you know, somewhere. You look at it, it's an hour off. I hate that. Well, the thing about those devices that really sucks is they have the weirdest like ways to update the time. <laughs> It's like, you, got, you know, you have to like press the freaking like three different buttons to get it done or you want, you know, the, the, the power up button is actually the plus hour. It's like, get the hell out of here. Just give yeah, me a couple of clock buttons. I've counted it on my microwave. It's a 12 press process to sit, reset <laughs> oh that clock. Well, it takes 12, 12. presses. I mean, you know, oh, okay. God. I mean, there's bigger things to cry about, but what the hell? Really? I got to <laughs> waste two minutes to do that? We got the clock above the sink is always the last one because you got to get mm-hmm. up on a chair. You even have to like sometimes stand up on the counter. You got to take the thing off of its hook to get to the back and to advance yep. the, the hands. Yep. And then getting that thing back on the hook is such a pain in the ass. <laughs> Been there. You know? Yes. Yeah. So uh, twice a year we got to do that shit. Why you just get rid of that clock? Who cares about that clock? It's the kitchen clock. You need a kitchen clock. It's funny, Jay. We, we've had clocks on the wall in houses I've lived in. And when that clock is gone, your eyes just, you don't know it, but your eyes go there all the time to see what time it is. And it's just funny when it's not there. You're like, damn, I'm looking at that blank spot again. 
<laughs> it is. I, I feel lost in a room if I if there isn't a clock I can reference. I, I really kind of do lose my sense of time a little bit. Not not me anymore. I mean, I, when I got my first real smartphone and I got rid of my watch, that's it. It's 99% of the time I'm just looking at my cell phone. So it but watches matter. might be coming back. We got the iWatches. Oh, boy. Oh, oh boy. Oh, did you Gosh, hear about that whole, whole like the gold molecules are closer yeah. thing? You hear about that in that <laughs> spot? <laughs> yeah, the guy, I guess the main developer of the watch was saying that um, I guess he he doesn't quite understand, um, you know, this smelting process or whatever. <laughs> but he he's under I the impression gold. that the gold molecules in in the watch are closer together, therefore making it harder and denser than other gold. Oh, here we uh, go. Oh Pseudoscience all over God. the place now. Yep. Associated with this thing. Wow. I heard the. <laughs> you see the report that they said like the batteries only last about three hours on on the watch on one I'm charge. I'm not surprised. Oops. I hope that's not the case for for those people who are going to buy it. I will not be. One they were claiming eighteen. That's what they were claiming. That's what I read. Well, but we'll see in actual. We use. will see. Yeah. Yeah. We shall I, I see. Don't know. I'm, I, something t- saying to me like a watch needs to be able to last at least twenty four hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, although they also said that when it gets low, it goes into some battery saver mode where it will just project the time, but you can't. The watch will actually electrocute you when it gets down, you know, to where you have to recharge it to remind you. (laughs) Give you 110 volts of the old whatnot. Here's your reminder. Well, we actually have two interviews this week. We have Kevin Folta coming on the show later on to talk to us about GMO, and we have a First Amendment attorney to talk to us about libel reform in the U.S., Cool. But first, Bob, you're going to tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. Yes, this is your Forgotten Superheroes of Science. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk about Amelia Emmy Nutar, 1822 to 1935. She was a mathematician who unified major concepts in physics that are critical even to this day to modern science. Ever hear of her? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> um, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call her by her first name because the last name is. I've had m- different ways I've learned and how to, it should be pronounced. I don't want to get it wrong all the time. So Emmy grew up learning French and English and piano, like most girls at the time in Germany. But she, she loved math. She was all about math, and she was not allowed though to officially apply for classes. And I liked her solution. She decided that she would simply audit them all. So she sat in all the classes and she her. did, she did so well in her final exams, which I'm glad they actually let her take that she was allowed into the graduate program. Wow. So, um, when, when she did finally graduate, uh, she found it almost impossible, uh, at least initially, it was incredibly hard for her not only to find a job, but to actually get paid actual money when she mm-hmm. did have some sort of position. It was incredibly difficult for her. And this was in large part due to not only her being uh, a woman, but she was Jewish and mm. a pacifist and a social democrat in Germany at that time. So yeah, yeah. heading so into she, the World yeah. War One era. Yeah, yeah, not a good yeah. Time. So not not good, not good at all. Better but than she, the World War Two era, but yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, right, right. The World War One era. Finally, she she did get work, and in her subsequent career, she did so many things. She solved many many. She solved many many theorems. She made key contributions to things like abstract algebra, group theory, ring theory, and more. The list goes on and on. Truly a, a, a brilliant, brilliant mathematician. Uh, but her magnum opus was mm-hmm. proving what later became known as Newtar's theorems, their theorem, uh, which was 
One of them was a foundational part of theoretical physics and invaluable to this day. And this is a really interesting theorem. This theorem is used to turn continuous symmetries in nature into laws of conservation. For example, if a wheel rotates around an axis, it's, symmet it's symmetrical no matter how you look at it. So this, the fact that this is symmetrical in that way in rotation means that you can plug it into your theorem and determine the conservation of angular momentum from, from that, from the, from those facts. That's pretty amazing. But even more profound, she found using this theorem a link between time and energy. So you throw a ball in the air today, you do it tomorrow, and the, the trajectory is going to be the same. So this symmetry in time or invariance can be divined to uh, to come up with the conservation of energy. So think about that a second. You can get the conservation of energy from that. So that that is totally ama amazing. So this this unifying principle would prove profoundly important in physics and is still a workhorse today. So none other than Einstein himself praised her for her penetrating mathematical thinking and called her the most significant and creative female mathematician of all time. Uh, physicist Ransom Stevens said you can make a strong case that her theorem is the backbone on which all of modern physics is built. I mean, that's Whoa. that's what some of these guys uh, think. Statement, yeah. it, it really is. So mention Emmy to your friends, perhaps when discussing differentiable symmetries related to conserved currents. She should be remembered. That's pretty amazing. You know what I think she should be remembered for? She obviously debunked the concept of an ether. I mean, you know, look at her last name. No, no ether. ether. <laughs> I mean, come on. She's <laughs> that alone. Coincidence? Phonetically, that's how it, that. it would be. All right. Jay. I understand that there's a mystery on series. The white spot? Mystery really? Series? There's two white mystery spots. Mystery series? Yeah, those <laughs> white spots. Yeah. All right. Well, I will get to that. NASA's Dawn Probe has finally achieved orbit around Ceres early Friday morning on March 6th. Yes. How cool is that? In case you didn't oh, know, Ceres awesome. is a celestial body in our solar system and happens to be between Mars and Jupiter. In fact, it is the largest thing between those two planets. I didn't know that. Ceres is, in fact, the largest object found in the asteroid belt. Bob, did you know that? Yes, of course. Okay. I didn't. It's made of <laughs> ice and rock. Mm -hmm. It measures 950 kilometers or 590 miles in diameter. And an interesting fact about the asteroid is that it's about one-third the entire mass of the asteroid belt. Did you know Ooh, that, Bob? Yeah. That's a, that's a cool I didn't know it was quite cool. that much, but yeah. Uh, did awesome. you also know it loves show tunes? Well, that goes without saying. It's a dwarf planet in the inner solar system. That's a good way to define it. Yeah, so it was a planet for a while, too. You know that. Yes, It was a planet. On. It was demoted down to an asteroid, now promoted back up to a dwarf planet. Yeah, so Pluto and Ceres hang out in a bar, and they're drinking and yeah. lamenting. Yeah, yeah. So the flight path from Earth uh, for the Dawn Probe took about seven and a half years. Now, if you ever played the game Kerbal Space Program, you get to learn about spacecraft orbits and solar system navigation. It's actually a really awesome game to help you understand all of those concepts, and you could you could learn quite a bit of the like reality behind it. The Dawn probe went on one hell of a journey using many other planets to get to Ceres. You know, this is just really cool stuff. I, and I Jay, it went to Vesta. It went to Vesta first. That was the first part of its mission. That's right. Yep, and it, yes. it was doing a you know similar analysis there, and then moved on to Ceres. Now that the probe is in orbit. It'll get itself positioned to scanning series, which is said to start sometime in April. But first, Dawn has to travel up to 47 kilometers or 75,000, I'm sorry, 47,000 miles or 75,000 kilometers by March 19th. And then it'll fly down to 8,400 miles or 13, 
5,500 kilometers on April 23rd to start its study of Ceres. So it's going to go up and then it's going to come really close to the surface and they're going to get down as close as they can so they could take high resolution pictures or whatever the best camera they could put on that Can't thing. Can't you know, wait for Seven that. years ago. I know, right? It's get gonna be down. Great. So the NASA scientists are incredibly excited to start studying Ceres. You know, they hope that they're going to gain some very intriguing information about our solar system and if there is a liquid ocean of water down there, how cool would that be? Anyway, I'd like to state that science once again has achieved the incredible while pseudoscience can't get out of its own way going to the bathroom. Dr. Carol Raymond, the mission's deputy principal investigator at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said, Both Ceres and Vesta, we believe, are protoplanets. They were on their way to forming large planetary embryos, and they were the type of objects that merged to form the terrestrial planets. But these two stopped before they reached the evolutionary stage, so now they are essentially these intact time capsules from the very beginning of our solar system, and that's really the motivation for why Dawn is going there to explore them in detail. So, what's with the two bright spots that we just mentioned? Inside one of the craters in the northern hemisphere. When I look at this picture, Jay, the classic picture with the two white spots you're describing, does it not look like the Death Star to you and like it's ready to power up its uh, laser and blow you to smithereens? That's what I get reminded of. Yeah, I could see what you're saying, but there is a, there is a something weird going on here, Ev. Now the scientists speculate, you know, those crazy scientists, that Ceres was struck by something that exposed some ice down deep under the surface. And since yeah. there's no atmosphere, right? The ice, evaporated you know it evaporates off and that it probably revealed some reflective salts that are reflecting the sunlight back or whatever the source of light is now so it's that or it's an air vent to the ancient evil machine found at series core that creates negative energy which of course is where nightmares come from <laughs> you decide which way wow. you want to go with that. This mission at Ceres is expected to last 14 months or more, depending on how long the fuel lasts. Interestingly, Dawn will end its ride at Ceres once it runs out of hydrazine fuel and just stay in a long-lasting orbit and eventually crashing in, you know, maybe over 100 years from now. Cool. Oh. Yeah, that's awesome. The other big angle to this is uh, the ion engines of Dawn itself. Just the engines are fascinating. So I check them out, Google them, and learn about them. They're they're the, the wave of the future for many different types of missions. All right. So, yeah, so we'll be talking about this again in the future, especially when they figure out what those bright spots are. All right. Let's move on. The next item I want to talk about, this is an interesting one. This is about the the essence of the disagreement about the nature of medical research between science-based medicine and alternative medicine proponents. Um, if you recall, about six months or so ago, David Gorski and I uh, had an article published where we essentially argued that doing clinical research on therapies that are essentially magic, they're so impossible that you might as well think of them as magic, is a waste of resources. How controversial. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, right, exactly. But obviously the alternative medicine proponents were not happy with our opinion because everything they do is essentially magic. If you accept the fact that you shouldn't research things like homeopathy, the homeopaths aren't going to like that. Uh, so there was a lot of pushback, a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, criticism of our article. All nonsense. Nothing that we hadn't heard before. Again, in my opinion, the alternative medicine community is intellectually bankrupt. They have nothing new or interesting to say. Their ideas have been completely demolished long ago. They're on a par with the creationists, really. They're just recycling the same logical fallacies over and over again. 
As evidence for that, a recent article was published by Sunita Vora and Heather Boone in an alternative medicine journal, once again criticizing David Gorsky's article and uh, David Gorsky's and my article, although they misspelled his name, Gorky. Recently, Gorky, Gorky, yeah, Gorky and Novella. So <laughs> David hates that. Nice. In, in, <laughs> that's awesome, right? In which, in which they email them. They recycle the same tired old arguments. But here it is. I just wanted to summarize. Use this as an opportunity to summarize the science-based medicine position and what they're saying. So first, they say that essentially you shouldn't use prior plausibility to determine what ideas in science should be researched. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. How convenient. Yeah. What? Seriously? They essentially, they, their argument, this is their argument. This is their actual logical argument, although they're not as pithy as this, but it boils down to, <laughs> we don't know everything, therefore we should behave as if we know nothing. That's their Man. argument. Their argument is, False. we don't know everything. And then they, they erect a bunch of straw men about what our position is. Yeah, our position is not that we know everything. Not, and they also interestingly flip one of our arguments, you know, which again, like they're not even following the basic logic of our argument. We, we would say that basic science, if a treatment looks promising from a basic science point of view, you still need to do high quality clinical studies because just looking promising in the test tube isn't enough. And it doesn't really predict what's going to work clinically. You still have to do the clinical research. They they take from that the reverse argument that things which which look impossible at the basic science level still may work. But you oh you, you can't do that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So kabuki dances and voodoo are just as plausible yeah, exactly. as anything else out yeah, there. Yeah, why not spend money studying voodoo? Yeah, exactly. Which that's homeopathy is on the on the level of that. It's magic. It's complete magic. <laughs> they actually pull the Galileo gambit. They mention Galileo by name. Oh, of course, not again. Come yeah, on. that old chestnut. Yeah. So that's number one. Prior plausibility, scientific plausibility is right out. That's just bias, and that. So we should act as if we know nothing, as if everything is a brand new question. It's a new day. Number two. And this is really, think about the combination of these two things. Their second big point is, it's like, yeah, but we get, because our argument is it's a waste of resources. You know, we have limited research resources. We can't do definitive efficacy trials of every crank idea. We have to pick and choose <laughs> which ones are likely to be, to work out, you know. Right. Limited resources. Hello. So here's their solution. Uh-oh. You don't waste resources doing large definitive efficacy trials. You could do smaller trials like N of one trials. N of one. That's one person. Or you could do uh, pragmatic studies. Pragmatic studies are designed for comparing the real world application of proven therapies. They're not placebo controlled. They're not efficacy trials. So get this. They want to simultaneously throw out prior plausibility and appeal to the weakest form of clinical evidence. So they want to support their treatments which with low-grade clinical evidence without any appeal to scientific plausibility. That's their solution. Well, I mean, that's the only chance they have. Of course. Right? Well, they could change their freaking minds. <laughs> yeah, right. Or they could respond to the actual evidence. Where we're saying is, you know, the other thing is it's not as if these things haven't been studied. 
It, like, for example, there was just yet another review of homeopathy, which I wrote about on Science-Based Medicine today. Uh-huh. They looked uh-huh. at over 1,800 studies. Of those, they found 225 that were worth looking at. You know, the, the rest were so bad, they weren't even worth counting. <laughs> oh, my God. The 225 so studies they looked at, they, they did a systematic review. This is the Australian, this is the Australian National Health and Medical Research Council. And they concluded that homeopathy doesn't work for anything. You know, that there's no clinical evidence to support homeopathy's effectiveness. It's indistinguishable from placebo. So you have a treatment that makes absolutely no scientific sense for whom we already have hundreds of studies showing it doesn't work for anything. But Vora and Boone, they're the ones who are they're, – they're studying homeopathy. In fact, they're looking at homeopathy for ADHD. They're, they're uh, involved in a controversial study in Canada looking at uh, homeopathy for ADHD. Why? Why should we ever do another homeopathy study? It's impossible exactly. and it doesn't work. That is, a, that is a complete waste of resources. It's unethical to subject uh, subjects to that. Uh, it, is a, it is complete malfeasance. Uh, in terms of our responsibility to society, to civilization. Nothing less than completely throwing homeopathy on the trash heap of history is ethically or scientifically appropriate. And yet they're trying to say, wait a minute, we don't know everything. You don't know. We can't say that. Just because it looks impossible doesn't mean it is. And and by the way, we're going to do crappy studies and use that as our evidence because we're not, you know, we so we don't have to waste time with these fancy-smancy, you know, double-blind placebo-controlled trials. That's their position. That's what they got. Oh my God. That's what they got. And that's, that, that's what we get every time. That's, that is their position. Yeah, that's the they, point, what, yeah. what I liked about their article was they so nicely summarized, you know, the, the alternative <laughs> medicine you. position and they made their two points right after each other, you know, so it really put it into very clear focus. So, so the summary here is that they wanted to develop really shitty science yes. to support their shitty ideas about you know how to make exactly. money. Like, and it boils down to them making money it's not even about science it's just about them having the thing that they well, the the thing is, they want their their treatments to be studied because the fact that their study is a marketing point the fact that they're being studied and they and they want to do crappy studies because they're almost guaranteed to be false positive they must not agree though that there's that there's been no evidence for, for that homeopathy does anything they they have had they have a totally different opinion of of the well, research. It depends I on who you talk mean by they, but um, certainly these two researchers. Uh, for example. I, I don't know about these two researchers. One of them actually doesn't believe homeopathy works, but thinks that we should study it. I think that's Boone. Oh, that's interesting. But thinks that we should study it because it's popular. First of all, it's not that popular. You know, it really isn't. It's single digits. It's not that popular. And second of all, second of all, that's not a reason to do yet another crappy study when there's already been over eighteen hundred studies. And 200 years, and they haven't been able to show that it works. It's at some point you have to give up and just say, what if you're worried about the public, then you should just talk to the public and let them know this is magical nonsense that doesn't work. That's what they need to know. They don't, we don't need another study because another study is not going to change anything. It's the definition of wasted resources because We've, to anyone who's scientific or skeptical, we've already shown it doesn't work. And to anyone who hasn't been convinced by 1800 studies, 1801 is not going to convince them. Yeah, that's right. That's true. It, it's a complete waste of resources. Ugh. 
Well, at this point, Steve, you just, you just imagine <laughs> that government institutions probably need to show some backbone here and say, you yeah, know, we're not going to spend any money on this garbage. Well, that's the thing is the UK did a report saying it's witchcraft. Don't, you know, stop supporting it. Now Australia has done it. Uh, you know, the, the science is there. The consensus is there. It's amazing that we cannot summon the political will to get rid of this, you know, to just get this monkey off our back. Civilization can ditch, can comfortably ditch homeopathy. Again, just relegated to the trash heap of history. There's no excuse for anything else. I mean, this homeopathy, it's, it's the poster child of, of this type yes, of thing. Exactly. And, and it just gives me so little hope that if we can't put this one to bed, <laughs> the other ones, forget it. Or how are we going to ever put them to bed? It's <laughs> I know, but really tell me about discouraging. It. I mean, so discouraging. Is so is so disproven. It's so obviously wrong. And if there's people that are never going to give it up alive today, like what do you do at this point? It's got to marginalize them. Got to win the political battles. You can't eliminate it, though. It'll never go away ever. We have to educate the next generation to think it, to know that it's stupid. Yeah. Well, this is why we need science-based medicine because that's the that's the line in the sand, right? Evidence-based medicine doesn't quite do get the job done here. We need science-based medicine. Right. All right. Let's move on, Bob. You're going to tell us about the coolest science picture of the week. Ooh. All right, guys. This was really interesting. For the first time. Astronomers have found light from a supernova that was gravitationally lensed into separate images, each one showing the same supernova but at different times during the explosion. And this is all the awesome. same at the same time. And in addition, we may see the whole thing repeat itself in a few years. So this is a, just a fascinating premise. This deals with a breed of gravitational lensing called an Einstein cross. You may have heard of it. Gravitational lensing itself it's an artifact from Einstein's general relativity. Uh, the basic idea is that light is bent around uh, a gravity well, kind of like a lens, like a huge lens in space. And what that does is, so the, the foreground object is a, a dense collection of, of either a, usually a galaxy or a bunch of galaxies. And the background objects far behind it is uh, what is having its light lensed. So in some cases, you have the background object directly behind the foreground object in, in such a good way that you have a, an Einstein ring, which is basically a, a semicircular or, or a full circle of smeared light. But if the object, if the background object is small, though, um, if it's, say, just a, if it's a star instead of a, a galaxy in the background, what you see instead is multiple points of light, four points of light arranged like a cross, the, the points of a cross. That is an Einstein cross. So this goes back then to 1964, Norwegian astronomer Sigur Revsdal, um, he predicted that these crosses could potentially be used to see this time-delayed lens supernova that I just described at, at the very beginning. So what happens is that in, in this case, uh, you would have different streams of light coming from the background object. Uh, that each take different paths depending on the density of the object it's going through. So, uh, denser areas will slow it down more or, or, or it would swing out more and come back in and it's lensed more, or whatever. So basically when the, these, these streams of light impinge on the earth, some of them are from earlier in the, in the supernova, uh, some of them are for later. So it's like these snapshots of, of, of different times of the, of this one event. Now the variation in the time difference themselves could be, uh, some of them, it could be days or weeks or perhaps even far longer. It's not just a few minutes or a few hours. It could, there could be a pretty decent difference. Um, and this is the same for any object that is lensed. Uh, when you see, 
the multiple images of a galaxy, it doesn't change much. So the images look pretty much the same. You know, even over days, months, se- even centuries, it's essentially the same thing. It's a, it's a galaxy. They don't change that much. But a supernova, on the other hand, they are transient. They they vary greatly over much shorter time spans, whether it's days or weeks. So one image, for example, can show the supernova brightening, while the other image could show it it already well past its peak brightness. They looked for this thing after this prediction. They knew this was totally feasible. They looked at it for it for over half a century, never really found it until relatively recently Dr. Patrick Kelly of Berkeley. So Dr. Patrick Kelly was searching for distant galaxies uh, looking at the Hubble images, and he spotted something that stuck out. What he found was the light from a Type 1a supernova in a galaxy this a staggering 9.3 billion light years away, very very far. Uh, now this this light was intersecting with uh, an intervening cluster of galaxies five billion light years away. So it was and, a cluster. Yes, <laughs> and that cluster, <laughs> better than that, Jay. That cluster had this real sexy name, Max J1149 six plus two 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 three. I just love how they name these yeah. things. But also on top of that, not only do you have the cluster lensing. But you also have a red galaxy. Uh, the black hole was like right behind that. Um, and this red galaxy gave it like a double lensing effect. So it even made it more dramatic, more dramatic brightening. So, but, so they looked at these images and they were able to use what they already, what they knew about how they, you know, the density of matter that they could already figure out. And they further calculated other pathways that the light could have taken. And they found out that the supernova presented itself to the earth, um, 50 years ago. And again, 20 years ago. So it had already played out. Um, if we, if we had somebody looking with the right equipment at the right spot, they would have seen the whole thing decades ago. Uh, but the cool thing is that they think that in one to 10 years, that it's going to happen all over again. I assume it'll be a, a completely different Einstein cross that will present itself, us with those images. And this must be light that, that, uh, is near the densest part of the cluster. So it was really kind of went out of its way a bit before it really got to us. And, you know, 10, you know, 10 years, 50 years. Think about it. That's really not that much time to delay light when you're traveling for over 9 billion years. So, I mean, it's not that much yeah. <laughs> percentage wise. It might sound like a lot. That's awesome. So as usual, um, these, these very pretty images are, are not just that. There's this very interesting potential behind them. Uh, we can learn things like the, the expansion rate of the universe in that section of space. Cause remember, this was a type 1a supernova and we use those specific types of supernovas to determine that the universe is not slowing down in its expansion, that it's actually accelerating. So this type of supernova might be able to give us some clues about the expansion rate, Hubble constant. Also, the uh, those four mm-hmm. separate images will allow us to investigate the shape and distribution of dark matter in the cluster. That could come in handy. And uh, more generally, we could learn more about the Earth of relativity, gravity, strength, dark energy. So there's lots we can uh, discover from this. So I'd like to leave this saying, so Jay. Bob. Anything that happened to you in the past 30, 40 years that, uh, that some distant aliens might be looking at some, you know, the earth being eclipsed <laughs> in the Einstein cross and watch you do over and over. Just keep it in mind. They could be looking at that right now. Like, well, oh, not, okay. not really, like, not really, not much time has passed, <laughs> but, uh, in the far future, they might be laughing at Jay all, you know, over and over. And that just makes me giggle to think about that. Yeah, that's what I giggle about. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. That really tickles your brain. I know it. All right, Evan, apparently Edison tried to talk with the dead. How did that work out for him? Yeah, well, uh, you know, 
<laughs> I see the letter J. It, it didn't, but you have to know a little bit about the history about this particular claim to really kind of appreciate what's going on. So I'm going to give you the uh, the background on this. So it's Thomas Alva Edison, American businessman and inventor. He's known for such world-changing inventions as the long-lasting incandescent light bulb, the motion picture camera, and the phonograph voice recording device, among many other things. Uh, he's about as well known as an inventor as any inventor in history. And he earned that distinction quite well. He has over a thousand patents in the United States alone and others around the world. But for all his accomplishments, just like every other person on the planet, he was a human. And as such, his brain contains some rather fantastical notions and ideas, which were, well, let's just say non-scientific, to put it nicely. In the early 20th century, for many years at the time, it was rumored that Thomas Edison was working on some type of device that would allow communication with the dead. Cool. The notion was started by an interview that Edison did, uh, which appeared in the October 30, 1920 issue of Science Magazine. He was quoted as saying the following, If our personalities survive, then it's strictly logical and scientific to assume that it, remain, that it retains memory, intellect, and other faculties and knowledge that we acquire on this earth. Therefore, if personality exists after what we call death, it's reasonable to conclude that those who leave this earth would like to communicate with those they have left here. If this reasoning is correct, uh, we can evolve, we can evolve an instrument so delicate as to be affected or moved or manipulated by our personality as it survives in the next life. Such an instrument, when made available, ought to record something. So if you take that at face value, Edison was essentially saying that through the power of invention, an instrument could be created which could record some sort of proof of afterlife. Then in a later interview, Edison made some statements saying that that was sort of taken out of context and he was really kind of kidding about the whole thing. He said it was more of a comical statement than a statement about any actual research that he was doing. And the curators of the Thomas Edison National Historic Site, uh, when asked back in 2007 about this by the Rocky Mountain skeptics, uh, they essentially said that that's the case. Yes, Edison was trying to, uh, you know, basically tell a little tall tale and pull a joke on the reporter, essentially, that he was never working on a machine to talk to the dead. Oh, interesting. Well, fast, fast forward to, to, to recent times. Uh, just about a week ago, it was reported by many different news outlets that a long lost chapter from Edison's memoirs has been rediscovered. And guess what? It turns out that Edison was working on a device to try and record voices of the dead. In his memoir, which is titled Diary and Sundry Observations of Thomas Alva Edison, uh, printed in 1948, so it was posthumously printed after he died, the English printed version of the book, there's no mention of those efforts to record uh, or create a uh, ghost phone, if you want to call it that. But in France, there was a French translation first printing of the diary which was preserved intact and guess what it has a final chapter in it which is not in the english version and there is where it shows the chapter shows how edison tried in late 1870 to find a basis for his spirit phone uh invention by amplifying the sound from his phonographs and uh, trying to you know essentially uh, figure out the ghosts were trying to talk from from the dead. And so he was specifically working on this. And he even made a pact with another engineer who was working with him at the time. His name was Wilt, uh, William Walter Dinwiddle. No, William <laughs> Walter Din William Walter Dinwiddie. And uh, his pact was that whoever died first, that they would try to send a message to the survivor from, you know, beyond the grave. 
So Edison not only believed that spirits existed, that they were also apparently talkative in the afterlife. And according to Philippe Baudouin, a French radio presenter and philosopher, he said that Edison imagined being able to record the voice of another being to be able to make audible that which isn't the voice of the dead. Mm. So there you have it. What was specul what w- he gave the interview and it was speculated at the time that he was working on this device but it was never recorded anywhere other than this french version f- of the memoir which was only recently discovered and now is going to be made available again for everyone to read spiritualism was hugely po- popular at that time you know i think he just could have fallen victim to the fad of his time yeah you know i'm not that worried about that type of thing better than uh sir arthur conan doyle you know, uh, yes. right. <laughs> yeah, who who kind of went off the deep end there uh, with the the Cottingling fairies and other uh, seances and other yeah. things yeah, yeah, yeah. that that impressed him, uh, but certainly not uh, not Harry Houdini. Yeah, thank God for Houdini, right? You set them all straight. Yeah, th- thank goodness, thank goodness. All right, Jay, who's that noisy time? So last week I played kind of funny sounding noisy for you guys. Let's take a listen to that right now. <laughs> So what do you guys think that is? Forbidden Planet. <laughs> Bob's still with Forbidden no, Planet. No, we'll get to that, Bob. So this is a this is something called a uh, a fat jet containing the decay products of a simulated Higgs boson in the TTH event. Whoa! Uh, of course. Why didn't so I they're interpreting? Right? Holy they're, crap. they're translating the output of this into notes. Mm-hmm. And oh, that's, that's why so cool. it has a very chaotic and, and random sound to it. So it's it's essentially a musical interpretation of yeah. It's a musical interpretation of quantum of a quantum event occurring. of the energy that's being given off, like by, by a, a energy measurement detector. Very odd. But you know what was funny was Bob Bob and I had a very similar thought last week. I thought that it reminded me quite quite a lot of this. <laughs> The difference is that that piece that I just played for you was actually composed, and the the other one was pretty random, right? That was a snippet from the 1970s (laughs) movie uh, Logan's Run, and it's a scene where Logan is walking into like the sex shop or the sex area or whatever. And it's all kind of, it's kind of strange and, and, and everything. Very, very hippie-ish kind of deal in that movie. I really do love that movie. I guess partly because I grew up watching it. But bottom line is, yeah, there is some, a random nature to, uh, to both of those. And I thought you guys would find that interesting. I, I actually did pick this one for you, Bob. Cool. Thanks, buddy. It's cool. Aww. All right. This week, I have something else, something to appeal perhaps maybe to a different person on this show. Take a listen and see what you think of this. Yeah, so ignore any kind of uh, background sound you hear and just focus on that change of pitch that you hear, that high to low change of pitch. That's and, interesting. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to get it. I don't know. I think I think someone's going to get it. We'll see. I do too. All right. Well, thank you, Jay. My pleasure.
All right, guys, we're taking a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Future Advisor. You know, which is a lot better than Past Advisor. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Let me tell you what you should have done 10 years ago. Unlike Past Advisor, Steve, uh, Future Advisor could help you retire, could help you set up your retirement. And let's face it, guys, you need to plan your retirement. You just It's just something we have to do now. You know, Most people don't have pensions like they did in the old days. And the way to do that is you have to find a company that you can trust that can help you manage your money. And Future Advisor, it has intuitive financial software that ensures you you'll get the most out of your investments. And, you know, hopefully, and they say that they think they can help you even retire sooner. Guys, just plug in your investments and let Future Advisor take it from there. The whole thing just takes a few minutes. Make the changes yourself, or if you'd like, Future Advisor will manage your portfolio for a fraction of what your advisor charges. So if you have any type of retirement account, you have to go to futureadvisor.com slash SGU to get a free portfolio analysis. Future Advisor, a report about your money and a plan for the future in under two minutes. It's free. Futureadvisor.com slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Well, as I said, we have two interviews this week. The first one is with Kevin Fulta. For those of you who are premium members, the uncut version of this interview will be the premium content for this week. And the second interview is with Mark Rondaza. So let's get to those interviews now. Joining us now is Kevin Falta. Kevin, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, very glad to be here. And Kevin is the uh, professor and chairman of the Department of Horticultural Sciences at the University of Florida. He is my strawberry expert. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm still enjoying the strawberry plants that you sent me. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I still am, uh, still get comments about the super long uh, science or fiction I prepared for you last time. Right, right, right. About the strawberry. And you you're bastard. joining us. <laughs> you're joining us this week uh, to update us on some things that have been happening in the the public debate about GMO, genetically modified organisms. Tell us what's going on. Well, what's happening is that um, I've been. I guess the victim of what has been a public records request for me and 13 other scientists, um, all public scientists that live in states that have uh, sunshine laws or uh, public records availability laws that allow activist organizations to request emails. So any kind of email or other correspondence, uh, they can request it, and they did. Mm -hmm. And so they want all our emails going back to 2012 um, because they feel that we are somehow in deep collusion with big agricultural companies uh, and in our discussions about transgenic crops. You, you haven't been emailing with Hillary Clinton, have you? I know. That's funny that it comes out at the same time. <laughs> but at the same time, it's cool because it gives – it really frames – what these kind of laws provide. It's really a good thing to be able to understand uh, what public officials do and um, and how, um, especially if there's a crime or some sort of problem, we can get to the bottom of it really quickly because of these really nice transparency laws. Kevin, um, on, on what basis are they making this request? Do they have to show some sort of evidence for why they think there's collusion or is it just, is the request enough? It's simply the request is enough to justify doing it. Um, the, what they say is because we've answered questions on the GMO Answers website. It's a website where for years I've been able to just answer questions through email for the public. They have questions. I'm a professor. Glad to help. Um, but the problem is you end up answering the same question every night. 
What's really nice about the GMO Answers website is that it was a place where all of us could kind of clearinghouse all of our answers together. And mm-hmm. so we answered questions there. It becomes like a fact. Yeah, FAQ. Yeah. Are we talking about like a university email that you use for work or are they going after your private emails? Well, it's kind of one and the same. Um, I never have uh, spent the time to separate. And and they are going after uh, specific emails from interactions with companies or uh, certain other organizations, at least first. And uh, what's unfortunate about that is that I have, you know, friends, uh, former students, other colleagues in the companies. So a lot of this is just private conversation. So you know, this is like the climate gate, although those were those were hacked emails. But still, they're they're using freedom of information type requests to just get tons of material without any probable cause, just so they can go trolling through there and look for incidental statements that they could take out of context? That's exactly it. And, and they've even almost admitted that because when I got the request, my first response is pick up a phone, call the organization, which is U.S. Right to Know, and say, hey, what's, what, what is this? What can I do for you? What are the questions you're looking for? They said, well, we want to know how, how deep the tentacles of the agrochemical industry are into our public uh, universities. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't get any funding for them for research. Uh, there's no, no one telling me what to write or say. I just answer questions on a website, and that's it. And they said, well, we want the emails. We want the emails. So this is a trolling exhibition where they want to try to invoke the cyber voyeurism to try to nail us on some gotchas, and that's all this is. So, Kevin, are you saying that you have no emails that are to those companies, Big Agro and all of them? Oh, I've got tons of them because uh, I interact with the companies. I interact with the public. I interact with other universities, farmers, anybody who wants to talk about this topic, I'm happy to discuss. Um, Big Ag has asked me, uh, and I say Big Ag, meaning a number of companies, even small ag, about how do we talk about the GM topic to a public? How do we be better communicators? Um, they've asked me about uh, certain topics in this area um, and asked me to talk to farmers. So I have a lot of communication, and that alone will be, well, look, he had 41 emails with uh, Bayer Crop Science. You know, He had 75 emails with Monsanto. Doesn't that say enough? So do you think there's any way that by providing these emails, which, you know, let's assume they're innocent, that could reassure the public? It's like, listen, we're transparent. Here's all the emails. There's no smoking gun in there. Have at it. What's, do you think that could work? Or you think no matter what's in there, no matter how innocent, they're going to make hay out of it? That's the problem, is that there really isn't anything there. Um, there can't be. All of my funding records are already public knowledge. Um, that's not the problem. What it is, is that you'll have uh, the text of the emails available to this uh, organization by which they'll extract the juicy little tidbits, like, uh, which, are, which are very common. Like if someone asks me to come give a presentation or talk to a farmer's group, they'll say they'll cover my costs. And then I'll do it, you know, a last class plane ticket out there, flea bag hotel, go back home. And uh, they'll say, what do we owe you? You know, or how do we write you a check or something like that? That's true for anybody who has yeah. come out, you know. But that's the stuff they'll pull out and say, look, here's the email that says, where do I send the check? That's what I'm afraid of. Do you have to provide your emails? Are you fighting that or are you just you're pro- turning over your emails? Well, I understand that there's a question of academic freedom here that we're not automatically obliged to uh, 
give everything to them. I still don't know what the university is planning to turn over. I've, I've asked them to, uh, you know, said, have IT, give them whatever they want. Just let me see it first. So, um, I'm going under the guise that I have nothing to hide. Um, that's fine. Give them what they ask for. So I'm not too nervous about it. Just that it's going to be cherry picked to death and used to harm my reputation. Is this going to affect how you communicate with, uh, organizations, individuals, and so forth in the future? Are you going to be more hesitant to maybe, uh, you know, answer every last email that sort of comes your way? I'm glad you asked that, um, because I will not change. Um, I've taken offense here. I've told my uh, vice president here at the university, I said, I want to go on offense. I want to fight back about this, make this public. The problem is I've received six emails from postdocs, two emails from assistant professors that said, this is exactly why I will not engage the public in a discussion around this controversial topic. Yeah. Now, so they're mm-hmm. using this kind of thing to intimidate and harass scientists, mm-hmm. and it resonates, especially through the younger ones who want to get involved in public communication. Yeah, it'll have a chilling effect on any scientist who want to communicate with the public. And, and for the public that wants to communicate with a scientist, um, since this has gone down, my phone rings more than the email inbox uh, alert goes off. Anyone who's in a company, anyone who is in a sensitive I shouldn't say sensitive because there's nothing sensitive about it, but a presumed FOIA-able uh, mm-hmm. position. They call me because they think that their email to me about you know showing up at their kid's softball game is going to become a public document. Now is the time when scientists need to be standing up and representing science. We need to be talking about science to the media, talking about it to anybody who will listen, um, to Go to the comment sections of news stories and participate in the dialogue so it's not just the crazies. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Kevin, is um, actually this is our – we have a new segment called The Dumbest Thing I Heard This Week. And for this week, it happens to be on the GMO issue, which, by the way, with events like this, you know, lots of times we compare like the anti-GMO movement to like the uh, global warming denialists and – uh, they get all upset about that comparison, but now they're behaving exactly like the global warming denialists. So they invite the comparison when they do stuff like this. But in any case, we've talked about uh, Jane Goodall in the past, who, despite her reputation, you know, as being a public scientist uh, and her wonderful work with chimpanzees later on in her career, she's, you know, going a little bit off the reservations. So mm-hmm. now, unfortunately, Jane Goodall wins our dumbest thing I heard this week. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. So she is um, attacking politicians and scientists, deluded politicians, for pushing, quote, unquote, Frankenstein food. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, oh, come yeah. on. Nice, nice term. First of all, it's Frankenfood. Get it right. If you're going <laughs> to use the meme, get it right, Jane. And Kevin, you were familiar with this guy. So a guy named Drucker uh, has just come out with a book that he's pushing. And, and Goodall is enamored, I guess, with this guy in his book. He thinks – she thinks – and this is actually the dumbest thing that she said. She thinks that he should win the Nobel Prize for his book. She didn't bother oh. to say what category that would be in. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure which category that would be in since he's not a scientist. Um, <laughs> I think she meant the Ig Nobel Prize. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he could get an Ig <laughs> Nobel Prize. So in any case, tell tell us about this guy, uh, Drucker. I asked you about him. 
You know, Drucker is, uh, he has a long history. Uh, he uh, used to be an attorney. He filed um, lawsuits against the U.S. government to get FDA documents from the 1990s. Uh, he filed this and lost back in the 90s and um, has published previously um, accounts which are based upon discussions from 1992, 1993, uh, where scientists in the FDA were paying close, uh, were speaking like scientists. They were saying, well, yeah, there could be potential problems uh, with these uh, new crops and these new new products, so we have to be careful about uh, what they are. Uh, speaking as scientists speak. Yeah. And, uh, and so he cherry-picked those statements, much like what will happen to the Science 14 who've been served the records request, um, and then put all these together into a document and now is, uh, pu- has self-published that book. Uh, it's published out of the same uh, cottage where his um, – uh, organization uh, that he heads comes from, and uh, Goodall thinks this is a wonderful piece of work. Yeah, so he he's doing exactly what you're worried is going to be done now. He's he was sued the FDA for documents and then cherry picked cherry picked statements out of context to try to weave it into a conspiracy, exactly like the anti-vaxxers do. This is the ex- right out of the anti-vaxxer playbook. You know, to just taking these snippets out of context. I I came across an open letter that he wrote to the Royal Society, which is the, the British scientist who advise the government. Um, and he is pulling the same shenanigans. You know, he did this thing. If you don't respond to my letter by this date, then I'm correct. And that you would wrong. It doesn't work that way. They, 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 you know, should rightfully ignore you. And that doesn't prove anything. But he spends a lot of time talking about this study that was published in 1999. Um, that it was very controversial. Is it Pustai? Did I say that correctly? Uh, Putstai, yeah. Putstai. Yeah, I'm familiar with the story. It was uh, a one-off study um, that uh, Putstai uh, sh- fed uh, rats uh, to, um, potatoes that were contained in a do- uh, snowdrop lectin, so an anti-insect uh, uh, protein. And uh, it turns out that uh, he came out with one paper that said that there were uh, problems in the stomachs and, and, and uh, um, digestive tracts. Uh, it was a one-off study, wasn't well done, and was highly criticized by the scientific community. And uh, Putzai became a, a, a hero because of this. Yeah, so I was doing a little bit of digging there, and I found came across some really good criticisms of his study, specifically that while the guy's an expert in lectin, He's not a botanist, and he screwed up, basically. He used the wrong controls. Uh, he d- was not aware of the fact that when you reproduce potatoes, because that's what the study was in, that you can introduce just – you can introduce uh, mutations and new traits just by making uh, a new – Oh, by the next generation. Yeah, just by it- creating a new generation. Yeah, it's a, a polyploid. Line. Yeah, exactly. Polyploid, exactly. He wasn't aware of that. Yeah, so the next generation, no two potatoes are exactly alike. So you would expect to see genetic variation for any of the bioactive compounds or healthful compounds in the uh, in the food. And this is a frequent problem in the anti-GM literature. They'll compare soybeans that are transgenic versus wild soy and say that there was a difference in the uh, livers and kidneys of the animals that were fed exclusively those diets. Well, you'd expect that. Yeah, so the uh, the paper that I was reading said that this is somaclonal variation. Is that- yeah, somaclonal variation is occurring um, not from crossing but from the variation through tissue culture, that when you regenerate the uh, the new plants that they do have slight genetic differences. Yeah, so he, he compared – 
the the GM version to a soma clonal variant, you know, so that and he concluded that the only difference had to be the fact that it was transgenic. So the very process of genetic modification must be at to blame here when that's just completely wrong because he completely ignored the fact that it, there just could be soma clonal variation. So this is, you know, we have 15 years of retrospect, you know, other scientists picking this apart, uh, but uh, Drucker completely ignores all this and says that this study is still relevant. Nobody has contradicted it, which is wrong. You know, like this is still, you know, like as if 15 years of, of study has not been relevant to the whole GM safety issue. So, uh, and he, uh, he's also has connections to the Maharishi University. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Ooh. He came, comes through the same group as, uh, Jeffrey Smith and, uh, Fagan out of, uh, Fairfield, Iowa. Yeah. yeah, Jeffrey Smith is, yeah, meditation, is the yeah. other guy that we that we've sp- spoken about who has these very sophisticated but highly flawed arguments, just trying to stoke fears about genetic uh, modification technology. Well, the other problem with Drucker's argument, he says, well, no one's ever refuted it in 15 years. Um, nobody's ever reproduced it in 15 years. Yeah. And reproducibility of something that would essentially bring down the food industry. Um, would be, you know, that would definitely be something that some scientists would certainly stumble upon or uh, reproduce very uh, strategically if they believed that the Pustai report had any uh, validity. All right, Kevin. Well, stay strong. Uh, I definitely agree with your approach to fight this head on, and uh, we'll be keeping track of how it goes. Well, thank you. If anyone wants to follow the story, um, use the hashtag Science14. Um, we've been uh, posting under that to continue to update everybody on the progress of this. And uh, there's also uh, one of these online petitions about the Science 14, which is available through the Cornell University Alliance for Science. And it's, it doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't, uh, it's not, it's just strictly a support public scientists as they uh, forge through this and encourage more public scientists to get involved in this discussion. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Awesome. Joining us now is Mark Rondaza. Mark, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Thank you. And Mark, you are defending me in the the libel lawsuit against me, which of course we appreciate. But you're on the show tonight, not so much to talk about the lawsuit, but to talk about libel reform in the U.S., which obviously is an issue that's come up as a result of the lawsuit. I've certainly learned a lot about how uh, libel law works in the U.S., yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it, it is a, uh, a rude awakening for a lot of people yeah. who get sued in what I refer to and what most people refer to as slap suits. That's a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And to put that in layman's terms, uh, that's when somebody sues you to try to shut you up, uh, but doesn't necessarily have the strongest case or even uh, a case that has a chance in hell. But, you, you win a lot of times when you sue your critics, whether you win the case or not. Because if the intent is to either punish your critic or to scare other people away from criticizing you, well, a, a pretty hefty legal bill gets incurred as soon as you get served with a defamation suit. Uh, some states have recognized this uh, for a while. You know, California really led the phalanx of states that have in, enacted some kind of meaningful libel reform by passing the nation's first real anti-slap statute. And let me be specific when I say that there are, most states have an anti-slap law, but the vast majority of them are 
almost meaningless. Like you have to be actually sitting in your state senator's office complaining about a law in order for it to apply. California passed one that was comprehensive. Any exercise of your First Amendment rights gets a sort of privilege. So then if somebody sues you for defamation, they are going to have to make sure that that case is not frivolous. That doesn't foreclose legitimate defamation suits. But what happens is the defendant can file a special motion to strike. That stops the case in its tracks and forces the court to look at the case and say, is this really a case that has some arguable merit? And if not, the case ends there and the plaintiff has to pay the defendant's attorney's fees. And it has been, uh, it's been a resounding success in California and uh, Washington and Oregon followed suit. And uh, recently the Nevada legislature adopted what I think is the nation's strongest existing anti-slap law. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it because it was my baby. Yeah. And not only in Nevada, um, there was a, a recent case in New York where the plaintiff was Sheldon Adelson, who's a, a well-known, uh, very wealthy casino owner out here in Nevada. He sued somebody in New York for defamation, and it turned out that the Nevada anti-slap statute followed him there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's got far-reaching consequences outside of the state that passes it. And uh, so far, there are six jurisdictions now, California, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, uh, Texas and the District of Columbia that have what I refer to as real anti-slap statutes. But, uh, you know, six out of 50, that's just not enough. Yeah, so what we'd like to do is to start a movement to promote and lobby for effective anti-slap laws in all the remaining states. Um, I'm going to start in Connecticut because that's where I live. Uh, we encourage our listeners, if you, you know, are, want, a, want a cause to take up the banner for, uh, you know, we'll be coordinating it. Mark, you set, you sent me a model anti-slap law. The legal, you know, busy work's already been done. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's, that's the kind of thing you could take that right to a state, uh, representative and say, this is the law I'd like you to sponsor. That is awesome. Does it need any tweaking? Oh yeah. You insert your state's name, you know, into Ah, the- so you gotta do work. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and each state may also have its its own per- particular idiosyncrasies. So it, it, you know, it's a it's just a model. But uh, you know, there are certainly even ways that I think it could be strengthened. Um, you know, just recently, uh, Steve, you had a great idea. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, in places like Florida, if you want to file a medical malpractice claim, you have to go through a pre-screening process before that claim even gets into court. And that's probably a good idea. When I think about access to medical care or protection of First Amendment rights, well, you know, maybe me personally as a First Amendment attorney, I'm a little biased, but why wouldn't we have just as much protection as that? So, you know, if if anybody out there is uh, interested in promoting this law and has even more items to strengthen it, uh, I'm certainly I certainly have no ego about somebody who says I've got some better ideas. Yeah, so basically the two components that we'd like to see, one is the anti-slap where uh, you can shut the case down early, you can get your attorney's fees and your your expenses, 
but also this minimal hurdle that before you can force a, a defendant to pay a dime to defend their free speech, you have to prove that you have at least some minimal merits to the case. And if you can't get over that minimal bar, then you can't force somebody to spend money to defend their own First Amendment rights. You know, anybody who's got any kind of access to a uh, to a legislator, this might be something you want to take up. But if you've got any legislator willing to sponsor it, if you're a member of this uh, organization or a listener of this to this show, I will come and speak to your state's uh, judiciary committee and give them the reasons why this should be passed. And, you know, this isn't just about, you don't have to just sell it as a First Amendment issue. That's where I like it. But it's also an opportunity for a legislature to do something that it almost never gets a chance to do. And that is to be pro-consumer and pro-business at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as we passed ours in Nevada, I used that to sell a number of my clients who were out of state on the idea of moving to Nevada. And it was a no-brainer for them. They were media companies that were facing frivolous defamation suits in their home states and had decided that, well, if they have this umbrella over them in Nevada, why shouldn't they move here? Increasing tax revenue, increasing jobs, and frankly, increasing the prestige of the business environment. All right. So, yeah. So if you want to help with this effort, just email us. Uh, put something obvious in this, this subject like libel reform or anti-slap. Uh, let us know, uh, what state you're in and, and, you know, what, how you want to be involved. We'll coordinate at our end, uh, sending you the model, uh, anti-slap law. And if we actually get to the point where, you know, we could have somebody in front of legislators, Mark said he'll be willing to do that. So. Well, I think we should stop at nothing than getting someone in every state in the United States to join this cause with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in particular, uh, you know, if anybody's in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is already flirting with this. Uh, I've gone and uh, testified before the Pennsylvania Senate. So if you're in Pennsylvania, that's a domino that's really about to fall and uh, could use any calls or letters that you can uh, that you could send to your legislators so asking them to support it. Okay, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for helping us with this. Uh, hopefully, you know, within a few years, we'll you'll we'll have some significant progress. That'll be great. All right, thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks Mark. Thanks, Mark. Good Appreciate night. it, man. All right, guys, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Dollar Shave Club. So I found out that my wife is using my Dollar Shave Club razors in the shower. Can you blame her? Well, she's, I mean, she's literally shaving her freaking legs. <laughs> With my face razor. <laughs> Tell her to get her own. No, razor. we did. So that was what. We, that's what's funny about it. So we were joking around about it, and, I, and I'm like, "Yeah, well, why don't you get your own?" You know, she's like, "How expensive are they?" I'm like, "You don't listen to this podcast, do you?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so she's getting her own. Guys, Dollar Shave Club. I don't know. I've been using them. I can't even remember how long now. It's got to be well over a year now. Uh, I love it. It's great. I save a ton of money. The razors are awesome. I don't have anything else to say. Oh, okay, wait, one more thing. The handle's great, too. That's important. And if you want to get going as part of the club, it just takes a few minutes, and then you never have to worry about razors again. DollarShaveClub.com, like you said, Jay, will give you a free handle, and then they send you the replacement blades for just a few bucks, and they're great blades. You get them delivered every month or every other month you get to choose, and they arrive right on time when you need them. Go to DollarShaveClub.com slash SGU and do what you got to do. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. 
Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Oh, butterflies. We'll see how much you guys know about your own home. What? And by home, I mean the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, sweet. I know everything <laughs> I do. It. I do live there, so I should know. You do someplace. live there. Okay, item number one. A new analysis finds that the Milky Way is 50% larger than previous estimates and has a rippled or corrugated shape. Item number two. Recent estimates indicate that the Milky Way contains more stars than the rest of the local group combined. And item number three. Astronomers have discovered nine new dwarf galaxies orbiting the Milky Way. Evan, go first. Milky Way is 50% larger than previous estimates, so are we, ah, gosh, forever. I've, I've always known the size of the Milky Way by what Carl Sagan taught me many years ago, that it's roughly 30,000 light years from the position of our star to the uh, Center. galactic core. Yeah. So are we saying now it's 45,000 uh, light years? How could they have gotten that measurement off so so wrong? Or, or well, maybe that's not the right way of looking at it. It's probably out the other direction uh, larger, which would put our relative position in the same context. So maybe that is right. Um, the, uh, the next one, uh, Milky Way contains more stars than the rest of the local group combined. Ay, ay, ay. Um... Hmm. How does this tie in with the third one? If there are nine new dwarf galaxies orbiting the Milky Way, are they considered part of that local group? And do I have to figure that into this calculation I'm about to do in my head? Uh, this is, this is tough. Now I have to kind of remember how big the Milky Way is compared to the rest of the freaking so big. ones in the cluster. Uh, who, yeah. It's, who has, who has it's a big? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that big. Um, astronomers have discovered nine new dwarf galaxies orbiting the Milky Way. You know, to suddenly discover nine of them, I can see maybe one or two, but not nine. I think there's something seriously wrong there. How could they have discovered that all of a sudden, sort of in one fell swoop? Uh, I'll say the nine new dwarf galaxies is the fiction. Okay, Jay. See, that was the one that I thought, the the one about the nine new dwarf galaxies, like I thought that that was probably pos- likely or whatever because they're looking. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they're constantly looking out there. They happen to find you know nine new ones because they're they're focusing their energy to look for new ones. So I, I'm not. I heard they were looking for seven, but they found nine. Seven dwarfs. Going, I guess go backwards in order. So that was the third one about the, uh, the new dwarf galaxies. So second one here about the Milky Way containing more stars than the rest of the local group combined. That sounds absolutely insane to me. Like that would mean it's absolutely gigantic. I don't know. I didn't think that. I thought that. That our galaxy was more of like mid-sized. I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I don't like that one. And the, the first one here uh, about the Milky Way is 50% larger than previous estimates. I don't know about that. I mean, really? Like, how could, it, how could we have miscalculated by 50%? Yeah, I'm going to say I don't think the Milky Way contains uh, more stars than the rest of the local group combined. I think that's an absurd statement. Okay, Bob? The size of the Milky Way, has been going, they've been going back and forth. It's it's difficult, Jay, because there's so much damn dust that it obscures a lot. Um, so I mean, it's it's difficult. It's really difficult to find to figure out exactly. Um, and the fact that the, it may have this ripple, the corrugated shape, that would be a cool way uh, to explain uh, how some of that was missed. So that's really interesting. Right. All right, more stars than the rest of the local group. Now you're talking 
say, what, 40 to 50 galaxies. Uh, but most of them are small. And, and Evan, you said, you know, um, you know, dwarf galaxies, they, if they found nine of them, wouldn't that add a lot? But they're dwarf galaxies. They, they don't have a lot of, of stars. It doesn't really contribute that much. But, uh, 50 even small galaxies, uh, is a lot. Plus, the elephant in the local group, it's Andromeda. I mean, we do not, Andromeda has more stars. Uh, now, Thank you, Bob. now the fact that Andromeda, um, or the Milky Way may be bigger, I'm not sure if they're actually changing that. And that would, could maybe might mess me up because I haven't come across this. I'm not sure what new number they might give it. Uh, but I think these are both too new to have to actually work with each other. So, um, I, the, the Milky Way is just, I mean, I mean, the, the, the Andromeda is bigger. Uh, it's definitely bigger, um, or, or more massive. And then you add all the other, the other galaxies. So that one, Definitely, uh, doesn't look right to me. And the third one, the dwarf galaxies. Yeah, they're, they're hard to spot. I mean, nine is a big number and it may be too big. Um, he, Steve may have changed it from one dwarf galaxy to nine. That's possible. They're hard to spot. I mean, some of these dwarf ga- galaxies are so close. We're not even sure if they're part of the Milky Way or not. So yeah, that, that one's a little sketchy. Um, nine does sound like a lot, but I think I might still go with the, uh, the local group one, uh, the Milky Way having more stars as fiction. Okay, so you guys all agree on the first one, so we'll start there. A new analysis finds that the Milky Way is 50% larger than previous estimates and has a rippled or corrugated shape. You all think this one is science. Yes. And this one is science. Yes. Yeah, baby. So no sweep for me this week. So so it's because of the rippled effect? Yes. That's why the estimate's larger? Yes, and and the, the word larger is deliberately vague. Yes, mass. It's in or volume. Number. Volume. I knew you did that. It's not Evan in the distance to this to the center or the diameter of the galaxy. But if you imagine, I, I reasoned that out. Yeah, the, the galaxy is not flat. It's corrugated, you know, or rippled. So think about, you know, you drop a, a stone in a pond and you get the the concentric rippling rings. That's exactly like that. what our galaxy is shaped like. That's, in fact, that's cool. That's probably what caused it. You know, you had something gravitational effect moving through our galaxy, creating this ripple effect. I've had to constantly update my mental image of the shape of the Milky Way. Right. In my oh, it's lifetime. A, it's a barred spiral. It's a barred spiral. It's, barred spiral. It's twisted, right? So it's not flat. And, right. and now it's corrugated. Now it's yeah. Now it's, now with ridges. And now more than that, Steve. And don't don't forget, there's a you know there's a there's like a corona of dark matter. There's a there's a yep. halo around it. You've got those gamma ray globules at, at the it's core. A massive, it's massive, massive black hole at the center. It's a, it's a right, mess. and you have you also have these tiny little ripples at the edges of the galaxy caused by Andromeda, uh, the the tidal forces of of Andromeda. So yeah, it's you know yeah. like the shape of the Earth. It's it's not a sphere. Really? Although it's and, good enough. And right. worst of all, there's no barrier at the edge of the galaxy like Star Trek taught me. Yeah. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> now, wait a minute. Nice. Shatner directed that one. Come on. Give him a break. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. God. Let's go watch <laughs> number two. Recent estimates indicate that the Milky Way contains more stars than the rest of the local group combined. Before I, before I give you the answer to this one, let's describe the local group a little bit. There's really only three big galaxies in the local group. The Milky Way, Andromeda, and what's the third one, Bob? Is it uh, Messenger, Meisner, M2, That's not the third biggest one. That's that's up there. That's that's one of the bigger ones, but it's not the third biggest. Oh, I know this. Uh, I can't pull it. I can't register no, in my memory. <laughs> oh, dude. The Triangulum uh, Galaxy. Yes, yes. The Triangulum Galaxy. Ah. 
the rest are really small dwarf galaxies, and you're right, Bob. They don't have they have so few stars that you know you add them all together it doesn't even add up to anything compared to the size of Andromeda and the Milky Way. Now, one of those two galaxies, Andromeda or the Milky Way, has more stars than the rest of the local group combined. According to Bob, the question, and I'll also tell you this: the Milky Way galaxy is more massive than Andromeda. Did you know that? You didn't know that, Bob. No. Well, it goes back and forth. It depends what you, who's talking and what, what studies you're reading. There's really yeah, not I agree. A consensus I agree. on this. I agree, but I think the current cons- the current belief is that they that gravitationally the Milky Way is more massive than Andromeda. But but you're not saying this it has one more stars. is fiction because the yeah, Andromeda maybe. has more stars yeah. in the Milky Way. The, how many stars? You knew Bob was going to get that. Come on. You had to know that Bob knew the number of. I didn't know. I didn't know. I might have got him. I might have no, got I, him on this. I was really going back and forth between two and three. I was not super confident, just extremely confident. Because it, it, it could have been, it could have been updated. But anyway, True. Bob, yeah. how many stars? What's the estimate of the number of stars in the Milky Way? Six. <laughs> Wait, wait. Um, I would say four hundred billion. I would say one hundred. It's one hundred to four hundred billion. That's yeah. a real yeah. broad range. Yeah, I was going to say four hundred, but um, they, yeah, that's a huge range. And again, I've, all the dust. It's hard. What's the estimate for the, that? Was for the Milky Way one hundred billion to four hundred billion is the Milky Way. What about Andromeda? What's the estimate? That would four to eight hundred billion. What is like six or seven hundred coming to mind? That sounds too one, high. One trillion. Yeah. Whoa. whoa. One trillion stars. Oh, well, that'll do. So wow. yeah, that completely dwarfs all the uh, yeah. other uh-huh. galaxies in the, in the local group. Wow. Whereas a dwarf galaxy could have, you know, five hundred million. Did you really you come know, across like, the number? It's a round off tr- error. Did you come off? Did you come across the number trillion? Because I think I've heard like yes. eight or, maybe like you know three quarters yeah, of the I, way. But. Yeah, there's there's a range. That was the, yeah. the I, but I read one trillion as the estimate. Yeah. yeah so. As, as a recent estimate of the number of stars, but it's also, we're not sure and yeah, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, definitely it's. Yeah. Um, when I was researching this, still I was be amazed. Refined. Yeah. I was amazed uh, at the range of uncertainty. I was like, really? You haven't figured that out yet? Yeah. And I wonder how this corrugation thing might impact the number of stars, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Right. So in 10 years, I might be right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's interesting that the Milky Way is probably more massive, but the Andromeda you know, certainly has more stars. It's it's bigger in volume and in, in number of stars. So, you know... The, We're going to combine someday. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Andromeda yeah. and Milky Way are going to hit each other. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the, the Milky Way is more densely packed with stars. Than Milk, Milkomedia. Milkomedia, they're going to call it. It's more densely packed with matter. It probably has more dark matter. It's more gravity than Andromeda does, but Andromeda has more stars. Awesome, awesome. Which means... Astronomers have discovered nine new dwarf galaxies orbiting the Milky Way is science. Nine. Wow. How, a- uh, how many dwarf galaxies do we have, Bob? In the local group? No. Orbiting the Milky Way. Orbiting. Oh, shit. Uh, I knew of at least three or four. So I'd say, I'd say probably 13, 14. 14 to 26. Whoa. But I don't <laughs> think that includes these nine new ones. So, you know, up to 35. Well, it depends what you mean by, you know, orbiting Milky Way. I mean, just. No, the orbiting the Milky Way means orbiting the Milky Way. The problem is we don't oh, know which ones are orbiting the Milky Way. It's not it's not always clear. It may it may be hard for us to tell if it's really in orbit around the Milky Way or is it just part of the local group? Because this goes out to 1.4 million light years. 
you know, these, that's <laughs> the, these dwarf galaxies that we consider might be in orbit. The other wow. thing is some of the really close ones could be globular clusters. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The, sure, the difference sure. is the, you know what the big difference is between a the, dwarf the galaxy stars, and the, 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 age, the age of the stars. The, the, the globular clusters are a lot older, aren't they? Well, they are, they are very old. I don't know if that's the way they tell them apart. What I've read is that dwarf galaxies have dark matter. Globular clusters don't. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so the dwarf galaxies would be more massive for the number of stars that they have. Interesting, okay. Check this out, Bob. I did not know this. Recent yeah, Jay and Evan, too. Check this out. Yeah, you guys just pay attention. You, <laughs> recent, evidence, recent evidence suggests that the large and small Magellanic clouds may not be orbiting the Milky Way. Oh, they, yeah, they, I've read that they, they might have already collided with us. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're moving too fast. Now. Yeah, they're yeah. moving so fast that they may not actually be in orbit. Yeah, they may not be captured by the Milky Way's gravity. Because oh, the last thing I read, Steve, is that we were we were going to merge with the uh, Magellanic before Andromeda. So now, but so now, the, I wonder if this is recent or is it just a uh, another group of uh, scientists that are saying, yeah, it looks like they might not be in orbit at all. So now they're saying I may have to update a couple blog posts. Then if that's true, okay. Yeah. They're saying maybe I may, may be moving too fast to be considered in orbit. The largest dwarf galaxy confirmed to be in orbit around the Milky Way is Sagittarius Dwarf Elliptical Galaxy, which has a diameter of 20,000 light years. Yeah, but a fifth, that's pretty big, but a fifth the size of the Milky Way. We're, some scientists think we're actually consuming a dwarf galaxy right now. Right now. Yeah. I think it's a wolf. So this is the wolf. largest dwarf. The yeah. wolf right dwarf. <laughs> Something like that. Wolfy. <laughs> Fascinating. So the, the local the local Dwarfy. group the local group has fifty four galaxies in it. Most of them are dwarf galaxies. Yeah. Well, and that again, that sense. that number may have to be. Uh, and in the in the future, modified up. Yeah. In the in the future, it it looks like um the local group will not be uh consumed by any by any other nearby cluster. So in the far far future, the local group um may be the only thing we see when we look out into the sky with any yeah. with any telescope with any device we will and we will merge of course and that's going to take quite a while but we will all merge into one monster monster galaxy but that's the only thing we're going to see everything else will be beyond uh, our horizon and uh will, yeah. will not be part of our visible universe anymore going to be a sad day when that happens how far is that out bob uh we're talking uh, like a quadrillion years or i mean that we're yeah, talking long time long, long time, time. One final point. The uh, models show, predict that the Milky Way galaxy has hundreds of dwarf galaxies. We just haven't found them because they are, really? as Bob said, hard to find. They're small. They're faint. They could be far away. Mm-hmm. We we may eventually discover that we have one or two hundred dwarf galaxies in orbit around the Milky Way. Holy – which would then make the local group three times – you know – Many times bigger than it is right now in terms of sheer yeah. number of galaxies. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. I did not know that one. Cool. Yeah, but they're small, so not by not by mass or number of stars, yeah, but yeah, yeah, by number of separate but, galaxies. But, yep. but discrete galaxies themselves. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. This was a fun one. <laughs> right. I mean, the, you know, I came across two Milky Way news items that yeah. were genuinely interesting, so I just rounded it out so with a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it up. All right, Evan, give us a quote. This quote was provided to us by a listener, Ryan Miller, Oklahoma City. Thanks for sending this one in. And here it is. All things must be examined, debated, investigated without exception and without regard for anyone's feelings. We must run roughshod over all these ancient puerilities 
overturn the barriers that reason never erected, give back to the arts and sciences the liberty that is so precious to them. And that was written by Denis Dirois. Denis was a French philosopher. He was born 1713, died 1784. He was also an art critic and writer, a prominent figure during the Enlightenment, best known for serving as co-founder, chief editor, and contributor to the Encyclopédie, along with Jean Laurent de Lambert. That is definitely an Enlightenment type of uh, sentiment. Absolutely. And did you know... Dirdois was put in prison for three months after writing a book about the behavior of the blind entitled Lettre sur les Arrugues. Yeah. <laughs> can't pronounce, I can't translate that for you. But in, in any case, the underlining meaning of the book was not about the blind, but about the existence of God. Very controversial. Very, very controversial for the time. Very, very. Hey guys, there's a few websites that we want to direct our listeners to. The first one is podcastawards.com. You can go there to vote for your favorite podcast in a number of categories. You can vote once per day in each category through March 24th. And you may notice that the Skeptic's Guide is nominated in the science technology. So of course, as always, we would appreciate your support in helping us spread the word. And go to nexus, N-E-C-S-S dot org and register for our extravaganza and for the conference. Bill Nye is going to be our guest and the keynote speaker. It's going to be awesome. Seriously, you have to go. And go to amazingmeeting.com for information about TAM 13, July 16th through 19th at the Tropicana in Las Vegas. The SGU will be there as well. Lots of stuff coming up. And don't forget our 10-year anniversary 10-hour live video audio streaming event is coming up also Saturday, May 2nd at 12 o'clock to 10 p.m. We are busily preparing for and writing that and creating our set and all interesting stuff. So check it out. We'll give you, we'll keep you updated on how to access that. And if you enjoy the podcast, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Um, and if you really enjoy the podcast, you can become an SGU member. Go to theskepticsguide.org and, and take, come take a look at our members page. We have, uh, a lot of fun stuff on there as well, including our SGU news page. And Ock Episode 2 is now up on YouTube. So go to the Skeptic's Guide YouTube channel. You see Ock Episodes 1 and 2 and some other new videos that we've put up there recently. So check that out as well. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining me this week. You're welcome, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.